this Wednesday. If you want to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, um, Andy Wyatt preached on this passage on Sunday, and I had planned to uh, deal with this passage during the month, and so I decided to stick with it. We don't have anyone in the hospital at the moment, but um, let's see. Tama Whitehead is having surgery on her hand or wrist right now, and we have a number of men who are dealing with various forms of uh, tumors and cancer, so we want to pray for them this morning, uh, this afternoon as we get started. Let me pray. For our food, Father, and our fellowship, we give you thanks. We're mindful of Tama Whitehead's need to come through this surgery successfully, and pray that what the doctor is doing will mend her uh, wrist and her hand and allow her to give free and painless function to it. Pray that you'd be with Joe Wall as he has begun radiation and chemotherapy today. Keep he and Pat safe. Help Wendell and Joy Howell as they move towards cancer treatment. We pray for Fleetwood and Maddox, that in the same way that things can get up, set up for him quickly so he can begin his treatments, keep he and Katie safe. We pray for Roscoe Douglas that the type and form of treatment that he is seeking would be successful in dealing with his uh, cancer. Bless he and Gwen. We pray for Bob Kimsey is he is an aggressive chemotherapy treatment that you would bless he and Carol. Father, there are many others that need our personal care and prayer. So we pray your mercy on these families, and we pray that you would help us to learn how we can reach out to them. Be with Bill Meyer as he deals with stem cell transplant for his leukemia. Take care of he and take care of Becky, and may this treatment bring progress in recovery for Bill. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, I think it should read there, in order to feed the poor, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not not love, I profit or gain nothing. In talking about Christian love, there are really three things that we can see in this passage. First would be the supremacy of love. The second thing that we would need to understand that love comes from God. And the third thing that we would need to see is that Paul sees that love ultimately has to triumph. So when we think of these things, Christian love is supreme, it comes from God, and ultimately that love is going to triumph. Last Saturday evening, had the pleasure, Friday evening, of a wedding rehearsal and Saturday evening of performing the marriage for a 
young couple, Micah and Brianna, and she asks that um, we have a message that would come out of the next three verses where it's talking about love being patient and kind and down to where it says love never ends. So that's what she as a bride wanted for their wedding, and I certainly accommodated them. And I wanted to begin that by saying that love is not static. Love is always, as it's Christian love, to be comprehended as being dynamic. Now, when we look at this passage of Scripture, that would be true of these things that Paul is speaking of here. Tongues can be a static thing. Prophecy can be a static thing. Knowledge can be a static thing. But love is always a dynamic thing, and when these others are done with love, then they become dynamic. But in and of themselves, they are static. Now, when we say that love is supreme, what we see in these first three verses is a repetition of the personal pronoun I. As you go down a few more verses in this passage, you'll see that Paul picks up and reuses this. This is a literary technique of using the word I. When he's using the word I, he includes us in this and say, I'm taking your place. Instead of saying this about you, I'm going to say, what if this was true of me? It's a lot easier to talk about yourself than to talk about others. And so he engages his audience through this technique. But wherever Paul is using this, he is speaking about people that are self-absorbed. You need to think about that. I think I'm guilty of that. I talk a lot about I. I do this, I did that. And I have to watch it. Uh, One person the other day was talking to me And he says, I'm so tired of listening to so-and-so. And I said, why is that? Well, all he does is tell me about who he is and what he does. And it's all about him. And I thought, hmm, well, I need to listen to that too. But it's true. In this passage, when Paul talks about these things, the people that he's speaking about have a problem with being self-absorbed. Um, where these gifts are used in a manner like that, Paul is saying they profit the person nothing, zero. And that's what he's trying to make a case for. So he says, you know, a person can have great spiritual gifts. A person can have the gift of uh, glossolalia or tongues, or if it were technically that these people could speak in other languages, which in some cases was the, uh, the meaning of this term, if they were just doing it because it brought them some self of adulation from others, then it would be improper. Uh, people that had prophetic powers or had gifts of understanding the deep things of scripture, or if a person was consumed with taking care of the poor through their own means. Um, 
if they were even willing to give themselves up in self-sacrifice, if it was to call attention to themselves in a self-absorbed way, and it really wasn't done with the motivation of love for God and other people, then Paul is saying it profits nothing for that person to do these things. You remember in the book of Acts earlier, in the book of Acts, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, remember them? There was a problem there of self-absorption. People like Barnabas had given things uh, to the church. The church had seen for their being sold, and then the profits of what was sold was given to meet the needs of the poor there in, in Jerusalem. Ananias and Sapphira saw that, and they wanted for themselves the the kind of adulation that had accrued to Barnabas, and so they engaged in the selling of a piece of property, but they were deceitful. They were deceitful in the way they conducted themselves, and they go down in the history of the church as a, a, a people that misunderstood what it meant to give to the work of the Lord. It was not for the love of the people, it was for the love of themselves that they gave this property, and it cost them dearly. The idea of self-importance is a dominant theme in the book of Corinthians. Now, we live in a culture where self-absorption is a huge issue. Um, Ronald Nash has has written a book about this and in in talking in in this book about self-absorption he just goes on and on how the culture is constantly having self-absorption played before them on the television day and night self-absorption in all the forms of media and and he just says this has become the dominant thing you see the people that are involved in professional sports, and you see the way they're portrayed. And they don't play the game to play the game. After they've gotten to a certain point in playing the game, they have to critique or create for themselves an, a, a unique aura that is uniquely their own. And so they're known for their prowess in athletics, but they're also known for the life that they have created for themselves. Uh, probably nothing could be more typical of this than what we see with Bruce Jenner today. And this man has created a, a complete life of self-absorption for himself. The Kardashians, uh, there's not much to them other than they're famous. What are they famous for? They're famous for being famous. Um, that's about the best you can say for them. And this level of self-absorption is paraded throughout the culture, and it's easy for us to catch this. Now, when we look in the book of Corinthians, we see that this was a problem within the early church, and it can be a problem in our church. Early on in chapter 1 of the Corinthian letter, Paul says he's gotten a report from a, uh, a certain family in the church at Corinth, known as the family of Chloe. They've come to where Paul is, and they've told them that there are schisms, factions within the church. And Paul says he believes it to be true. 
Some of the people were saying that they were followers of Paul. Now, the way they said it was this. I am, hear that again? I am a follower of Paul. Someone else would say, well, I am a follower of Apollos. Some others were saying, I am a follower of Cephas, Peter. Then later on, one goes on and trumps all of those by saying, and I hear this in the church, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. It's, if, if you say you, somebody says that they're into some particular type of theology, someone will trump it by saying, well, I, I, that may be where you're at, but I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, that sounds good. But it's really a statement of self-absorption. It's something that we should take caution in. Now, there was also problems in this church that come up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper. This self-absorption shows itself in that some of the people, as they came to the Lord's Supper, were coming, having glutted themselves and even coming drunk to the Lord's Supper. Then it says that some of the people that came, they came, and the self-absorbed people wouldn't even try to help them, and they were in a form of being neglected because these people didn't have any food to bring to the love feast, and they went away hungry. And so Paul speaks in correction to that, And he says, don't you have homes in which you can eat and homes in which you can drink? And you shame the poor people in the way you conduct yourself at the Lord's Supper. And he says, don't you know you have to be able to discern the Lord's body when you come to the Lord's table? Now, that's basically to be understood in two ways. Number one... We understand that the Lord's Supper is the Lord's. It's not about us. It's not about us, quote, taking communion as much as it is about the Lord providing communion and our receiving that communion directly from the Lord. And if we were to have that in our mind, then we would not be overly concerned with ourselves but overly concerned with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that flows from him to us in that supper. But the other thing is, as we see from the chapter prior to that, chapter 10, where Paul references the Lord's Supper, and the body of the Lord there is the church of Jesus Christ. It's not merely to build me up that I might have a spiritual high from coming to the Lord's table, but that I might be made spiritually strong in order that I can serve in the context of the local church. Um, Paul mentions baptism in the same way. Some of these people were claiming that they had been baptized by, uh, by Paul. And you can imagine that would be a pretty good trump card, you know. Well, who baptized you? Well, I got baptized by Paul. You ever notice as you come into this hallway, right down the hallway there, uh, as you're going out, you'll see it on the left. There's a there's a announcement to the world from the Presbyterian Church in America. 
that we have formed a new denomination. Have you ever noticed that down there? It's a framed document. It's right down there on the left. You can see it on the way out. Well, something happened the day that that was signed that probably did me a lot of good. And that was my dad was at that meeting. And my dad had been at every single meeting of the foundation of the Presbyterian Church in America. And he was at that meeting. But the only difference between him in the previous meetings and him in that meeting is this. He was not the official delegate of our church. There was another man that got that privilege. And so that man got to sign that document. If it would have been otherwise, then whose dad would have got to sign the document? And that would have been bad for my head. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? <laughs> that would have been bad for my head. <laughs> I could have, if people see that document, John, is that your dad? Yep, that's my dad. But <laughs> we find things like that in the church to find ourselves important. We have importance in the church as we function in love and as we function to make a, a contribution to the life of the church. You see in the passages immediately before this in chapter 12 and in the passages that follow in chapter 14, the whole emphasis on spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge the people that possess these great spiritual gifts were calling importance to themselves. Because they possessed these gifts, they saw themselves as having a unique significance in the life of that church. And Paul is saying to these people that that's not correct. Now, what we need to make sure that we understand is this. Each one of those gifts that is mentioned, there's a number of others, are important. But they're only important when they're engaged in, in the life of the church with a, an obvious sense that the person who is exercising these gifts is exercising these gifts in the power of the Holy Spirit and with a love for God and a love for the, the people with whom he is ministering. And so what we need to see is the supremacy of love in our lives both in the church and outside the church. I'll give you a few examples. <clears throat> I said to Michael, Micah and Brianna at the wedding, you met at UGA. You saw each other. Some point in time you began to speak, began to date. Love began to grow. Then what ended up happening is love began to grow, you began to get serious. As things got serious, you began to take actions towards getting married. You got engaged. You had some premarital counseling. You did all the things that were necessary to put together a wedding. What has happened during this entire period of time? Your love has been dynamic. Well, today you come and you're married. Now you're married. Is that a static condition? Should their love have reached its zenith, its climax, at that point in time? And we would say no. And what I was trying to say to them is you need to work to keep the dynamic of your love growing each and every day of your life. We can do this single. We can do this married. 
but it's especially important when we're married that we do this, and it's especially important that we do this when we're single because we're constantly involved with other people in our life and in our church. Love has to be dynamic. I have a friend named Jack. Jack is a great guy. He has been uh, a ruling elder in the PCA for a number of years. He's um, involved in uh, the Georgia Correctional System. He's been involved in that for about 20-something years. But Jack's mother and father divorced when he was young, and his mother remarried, and the man uh, that became Jack's father-in-law never once from childhood, and Jack was a young boy when his mother and stepfather married, from the time he was a young boy, well up into adulthood, the father never once told Jack that he loved him. One day, Jack went to his father-in-law, and he says, I'm just concerned you've never used this language. And the father-in-law, the best he could come out was, do you have food on the table? There was a pause, and he said, yes. Do you have a roof to live under? Yes. Were your needs taken care of? Yes. Well, then you should know. But he still didn't say, you should know that I... Yeah, he didn't say it. Bill Jones, who was here, as some of you might know who I'm talking about at this point in time, said he had a secretary over here at the Merrill Lynch office. She'd been married for a very long time. And he said... uh, One day she came in and she said, I'm divorcing my husband. And Bill says, you're doing what? He says, she said, I'm divorcing my husband. And he says, well, why? He says, well, he doesn't touch me. He doesn't talk, talk to me. He's not tender to me. He's just there. She did not feel that she was loved. And time, tenderness, and touch are very important both to a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. It should never stop. It should continue on. In contrast to that, I I went to uh, Gulfport, Mississippi. I'd been there about a month, two months, And after the service, this doctor came up and he said, would you join my wife and I over at the Yacht Club for the the Sunday buffet? And I said, well, sure. So I finished greeting the people and I went over there and there was this man. He was waiting for me at the big walk-around salad bar. His wife and another couple were sitting over here at a table. So I got my salad and we got over it. We were just, he was just getting in his seat and I had just really put my hands up on the table and he looked at me and he said did I ever tell you about the first woman I ever kissed now he said this in a very loud way in front of his wife and this other couple and I said no we hadn't gotten that far yet and he looked at me and he said well it was Billy Graham's wife and then he said and she is quite a kisser Now, that would be Ruth Bell. (laughs) 
Well, as the story came out, Ed's mother and father were Presbyterian evangelist missionaries in China, and Ruth Bell's parents were medical missionaries with the Presbyterian Church in China, and their parents were the best of friends. And at age 11, when the, mission, when the, the missionary families would get together, Ed and Ruth would run around the corner somewhere and practice kissing. I went to their house. Here's what their house looked like. Nick, knack, Nick, knack, this and that, this and that. Ed would walk over and say, you see this? Eleanor got me this when we were so-and-so place. And Eleanor would come in and she would say, well, I was out shopping with some of the officers' wives and I saw that and I said, Ed would love that. And so I brought it home. Then we go over here and here was something else. And Eleanor would say, Ed got me that. Now, my basement is full of my junk, okay, and it is full. That house looked like a museum curator's closet. And it was full of stuff that Eleanor bought for Ed and Ed bought for Eleanor. What were Ed and Eleanor doing with one another throughout their life? Expressing what? Love. That's what we have to see. In the church, in our homes, in our relationships with one another, love has to be at the top of the list. Now we look here and we see that love is of God. The second thing that we want to see there just quickly is John 3.16. How does that verse that everyone knows begin? For what? Okay. Now, if we would say what one truth about God do most, even pagan people in America, know and believe in, what is that one truth that they believe about God? God is, they know that. That comes from 1 John 4.16 and 1 John uh, 4.10. God is love. You know, when we have a benediction, oftentimes the benediction that I use is from 2 Corinthians 13.14. It's the last verse in 2 Corinthians. Now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, what's the next phrase? And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forever. Amen. Over and over again, what we're told is God is the source and the fountainhead of our love. Now, when we look at the scripture, we see that Jesus came into the world and he is incarnate. And what is his principal role as being incarnate to do? It's to manifest the Father. So when Thomas says to, to Jesus, show us the Father, 
Jesus comes back to Thomas and the disciples and says, Have I been with you so long that you don't understand? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And what do we see Jesus demonstrating in every action that he does? And we see the love of Jesus Christ being manifested. It's the incarnation. We say, okay, God's love, that's abstract. I can't get it. If we look at the life of Jesus, we can get it. That's the love of God being demonstrated to you and to me. Now, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? The work of the Holy Spirit is to accomplish inside us everything that Jesus came to accomplish for us. So if, if Jesus came to accomplish that we could see that his Father is love, and if Jesus is love, the work of the Holy Spirit is, how do we say it in Galatians 5.17? The fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first one? Love. And so what we've got to see over and over again, if we say that we have faith in God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that we're saying we have a faith in the God that is love. If we eat that kind of grace, then that type of grace needs to be reflected in every aspect of our conduct toward one another. So we see this over and over again repeatedly. The love of God is flowing from himself into Jesus and then flowing from the Father and Jesus into us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that come into our lives? Well, I get to work with a great group of people, and it's not the elders, although there's an element of that. The elders are okay, but I get to work with the elderly. That's better. But when you get to work with the elderly, especially a couple, and, and we had one couple just recently that started Jack's Saw Shop, and many of y'all know that couple. And they had been married for over 70 years. Well, you know what they had done all these 70 years? They had looked at one another. And there is a very great truth to the statement that when a couple live long enough together and look at one another for all those years, they begin to what? Look like one another. If you look at the Father through the Son, you will begin to pick up that reality in your own life. You will become Christ-like, Christian. And so the idea of how this is accomplished in us is to open the word of God and read it. That's a principal means of grace. And the other thing is that you're here when the doors are open, especially on Sunday morning for worship, where you hear the word of God preached. The more this is true in your life, the more you're going to take on the countenance of the Father. Well, we'll pick this thing up next week. Let me close with this. Dallas Willard said this in a negative way. I think this could be helpful to you. Anything that can be done with anger can be done better without it. 
Anything that can be done in the church in a general way without love can be done in the church in a vastly superior way with love. We love God because he first loved us. He gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And now we are called to love one another. Let's pray. Bless us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to this end, to this goal, that what we do in our lives and in the church would exemplify the love of Christ. And we pray in his name with thanksgiving. Amen.